1: Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim, here today in the Crawl Space Wormtown Studios with Lance. What's up, Lance?
0: How's it going? It feels good to be here once again in Wormtown,
1: nestled nicely in our Crawl Space studio, our safe place. <laughs> uh, yeah, and today we have a great conversation with a really interesting woman, Francie Hakes. And we met her a couple years ago at CrimeCon 2017 in Indianapolis when she actually introduced us uh, for our panel. And so that was pretty cool. She happened to see us when we were probably at our most nervous. And uh, so we kind of bonded a little bit there, but we finally have her on and she does some really interesting work. And this this interview is uh, really disturbing. Like, like some of the facts are really disturbing.
0: Yeah, we wanted to have her on because of her work uh, dealing with child exploitation and preventative measures and intervention. She is a very big advocate for uh, protecting children. And we didn't, really maybe naively so we didn't know how how deep that goes as far as the uh, the how bad people can be
1: yeah and i think we kind of touch on it in the uh, interview and, and it's kind of just something that is easy to not face head on it's it's just a really disturbing topic
0: and she does touch upon that a little bit, just how uncomfortable that topic is. And that's why there's a, a significant lack in funding and, you know, just public awareness for it.
1: And But that's exactly why an interview like this and the work that she does is so important. So it is important to uh, listen to this and forward it out, retweet it. Tell your friends to listen to it too because it is pretty crazy. Lance, did you know that the 3% of adult men have pedophile tendencies? I don't
0: even want to think about that.
1: I was home after this
0: interview and my girlfriend and I looked at the population of Boston where we live and then we looked at uh the cross-section of males and then we did the math on 3% of that and it's basically you walk down the street to get on the the
1: subway and you're probably going to walk by 5 or 6. Please listen to this and uh, ingest the information that she's giving you and take it seriously and share with a friend because some of this information can actually help you or your family. And definitely listen to her because
0: Francie's no joke. Former assistant district attorney. Check out her blog at uh, Francie Hakes. That's Francie, F-R-A-N-C-E-Y-H-A-K-E-S wordpress.com and just look at the work that she's done and look at her background and, and know that this is someone who knows what they're talking about and you should listen to her. And before we get to the interview, Tim, there's something very exciting going on at the Crawl Space Patreon. Have you heard this new thing from these guys at Crawl Space? I have. I'm
1: one of the guys here at Crawl Space. Yeah. I love those guys. Check out patreon.com slash Podcast. We're doing a lot more video stuff. Actually, we can't offer anything audio only now, but we are offering a lot of video clips, and we're actually doing some kind of True Crime Variety Show, where we will talk to some people that you've heard of and and that you you are familiar with in the field of true crime, and it will only be broadcast on Patreon, and we will also show you a lot of behind-the-scenes clips of everyday life here at the Crawl Space Studios, which is sometimes very absurd.
0: The title itself just makes me uh, so happy. The Crawl Space True Crime Variety Hour. Half hour it is exactly what it sounds like you're gonna get a variety of stuff all with the uh all with the backdrop of true crime and it's gonna be fun and we're gonna to try to make it as less uh depressing as some of the episodes that we do less serious I guess you'd say and uh, we're gonna have like you said, just the, the guests, the little moments here.
1: Okay, so check out those video clips and the Crawl Space True Crime Variety Half Hour. But Tim, how much are these people going to pay for this? Only $5 a month. So what if I was a $10 donor? Well, you could down-done to $5, is that a word? Or you could stay at 10 for all we care, honestly. You'll be getting the exact same thing, but if you want to support us a little bit more, that's fine.
0: More bang for your buck, would you say?
1: No. Oh, okay. Okay, so we hope you enjoy this interview as much as you can. Please follow us on Twitter at Crawlspace Pod and on Instagram and Facebook at Crawlspace Podcast. And we are on Patreon at patreon.com slash crawlspace podcast. Check it out. Thank you very much. Welcome to Crawl Space. Francie Hakes, how are you today, Francie? I'm
2: good, thanks, guys. How are you?
1: We are doing very well. Thank you so much for coming on
0: the show. We have very fond memories of you from CrimeCon, uh, the early days when we were in Indy. You, uh, you provided us with some some advice before we went out on stage we were particularly nervous a bit overcome with anxiety and you said uh don't worry guys you are the experts and set our mind at ease so formally thank you for that
2: oh my pleasure it's uh you guys did such a great job and the first crime con was great the second crime con was great and hopefully the third one in new orleans next year is going to be even better
1: i'm sure it will be are you definitely going in uh next year
2: We are. The production company that I consult with, XG Productions, is going to be hosting again. So yeah, we'll be there.
1: So what do you do with XG?
2: Um, Well, because I'm a former state and federal prosecutor and XG is, you know, XG men. uh, So all government kind of three letter type agencies, we develop, write and produce crime content for unscripted and scripted and features. It's, uh, It's kind of a second or third career for me. It's not somewhere I ever saw myself, but it's been really interesting.
0: I bet. Uh, speaking of your career, let's go into that a little bit. You have done everything from, well, currently what you're doing, which is your uh, your podcast, Best Case, Worst Case, which I'm sure back when you were appointed National Coordinator for Child Exploitation, Prevention, and Interdiction, you didn't think that that would be uh, something you'd be doing, right?
2: No, I mean, well, back then I don't... I've certainly had never even heard of podcasting, and I never expected that I would do a podcast. But let's be honest, as a prosecutor, I can talk.
0: <laughs> right. So uh, take us back to the early days. What What started you in your, uh, your pursuit to bring justice to the world?
2: Well, you know, people laugh, but I've wanted to be a prosecutor since I was five years old watching... Um, Perry Mason reruns with my dad and I always wanted to be Hamilton Berger who was the prosecutor character who lost I'm pretty sure in all the seasons Perry Mason ran I think I remember reading that he actually won one case he lost every case to Perry Mason because all of Perry Mason's (laughs) clients were miraculously innocent but He portrayed prosecutors, I'm sure it was the first prosecutor I'd ever seen portrayed anywhere, and he portrayed them as such honorable, ethical people seeking justice, and I think it just sparked something in me. So I wanted to be a prosecutor my my entire life, really.
0: That's great! What a great memory! I picture a, a young uh, Francie sitting in front of the TV, just rooting for Prosecutor Berger and saying, "This time you'll get him! This time you'll get him!" I did.
2: <laughs> I always did in the court because, of course, I was way too young to understand the conceit of the show was that Perry always had innocent clients, and so I was always convinced the person sitting in the box was guilty. <laughs> <laughs>
0: What an incredible impression that left on you and you and probably other people. Television back then, you have Perry Mason. And back then you were thinking, everyone, everyone must be innocent because Perry Mason just, you know, is telling me this.
2: Well, that's right. And it wasn't until college that I really started to kind of focus on what kind of prosecutor I wanted to be. I, I read a terrible story and I think it was the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm from Georgia and I was at the University of Georgia at the time. And I was reading a story about a very young girl. I think she was maybe three or four who had been uh, brutally raped by a stranger, an adult. And this was back in the 80s. And so DNA and all that really just didn't exist. And so she had to come into court to testify against him and she couldn't do it. She was so afraid of him and the courtroom and of men in general that she couldn't do it. And so even though they had irrefutable proof the guy was caught, um, you know, leaving the scene, they felt like they had to drop the case. And I remember thinking to myself, that's what I'm going to do.
1: Yeah, that that sounds awful. Yeah, dropping the case for that. Ridiculous.
2: They did. Well, in today's era of DNA and fingerprints and all sorts of very sophisticated DNA, it's almost unheard of. But um, back then, you know, you, you really had to have the victim testify and identify the person. And this little girl was obviously too scared of him to be able to do it. In court. And I just remember that I thought that's what I'm going to I'm going to protect women and children. That's what I'm going to do
0: as part of protecting women and children, especially children. And I guess it goes to your story right there. How how does a society get to the root cause of child abuse and child crimes like that? Because you can take them to where they're being tried. But is there something that can happen before that that can prevent them in the first place?
2: You know, that's a great question. I think that's one of the reasons I eventually left the Department of Justice uh, in 2012, because I felt like I was shoveling smoke. You know, you just it never ends. It's never going to end. And I thought maybe if I go out kind of on the speaking circuit and I do a lot of training and speaking on prevention, we can attack the problem from that side. And I think that's ultimately the answer is prevention. I do a lot of training to schools and kids. And I talk to them about they, the kids themselves, are their own first best line of defense. But if we don't arm them with knowledge, if we don't teach them about people who will prey upon them, the people who will hurt them, who, by the way, are 85 or 90 percent most likely to be inside their circle of trust, including their own parents and relatives then how can we expect them to understand what's happening to them and be able to tell someone when it is? It's a terribly underreported crime. And I think if we are not training our kids and our parents and our communities and our youth-serving organizations, then we're really falling down because we do not have enough prosecutors, investigators, or even judges and juries to deal with the problem, as I, I call it, an epidemic. I think we have an epidemic of child sexual abuse.
1: So how do you train uh, kids and, and uh, parents to uh, be careful?
2: Well, one of, the, one of the most important things I talk about is offender behavior. Who are these pillar of the community kind of offenders like Larry Nasser and Jerry Sandusky? Uh, how do they operate? What do you look for? What are the red flags? And when I talk to people like schools and charity organizations, the hardest thing for them to accept is that they have people that work uh, and volunteer right next door to them, right next to them, who are sexually interested in children. And they work there or volunteer there because they have targets at hand. And so it's the hardest thing for them to accept that people they know that seem normal, that they even socialize with or even love, can be sexually interested in children. And that's the first barrier that we have to break down. And that is what does a predator look like? Uh, you know, they look like all of us.
1: Oh, you mean that they don't look like they don't have like long beards and they're they're like toothless and like really long fingernails. That's right.
2: They are not the people that are sitting on the uh, park bench in the Uh, playground in a dark overcoat, you know, with the word predator stamped in their forehead. It's not what they, that's who they are.
0: What are some of the warning flags that you educate to parents and to children uh, when they think they might be encountering someone like this?
2: Well, one of the common things is that these uh, sort of pillar of the community or offenders use a technique that's known as grooming. So I think a common misconception, I try to dispel a lot of myths when I speak, and a common misconception is that your child is at risk from stranger danger, your child is at risk from being, you know, snatched on the way home from school or church or wherever they're walking home or riding their bikes home from, at risk to be snatched by you know a stranger and assaulted. And while that happens, it's incredibly rare. Their biggest risk is at home or in school or at their church or their sporting activities. The people that they know that their parents hand them to and that they trust. And so the first thing to dispel is the myth that your child's biggest risk is from a stranger. And then to talk to them about these kind of offenders and how they groom children to maintain what we call the conspiracy of silence.
0: How does that perpetuate?
2: Well, we know that children, or at least child abuse, is underreported. Studies of adults show us anywhere from 75 to 90%. So, 10 to 25% of children who are sexually abused ever disclose the abuse. And so, it's a very small number. So, we know it's going on in much bigger numbers than we're able to assess. And so, what happens is these offenders will groom these children so that the children become compliant. That is, They just do what the offender wants, and then they feel a sense of shame, guilt, or even love and affection for the offender so that for all or some of those reasons, they never tell anyone about it. It's that conspiracy of silence. They maintain the silence because they feel like they've contributed to their own abuse. They're guilty for it. They're ashamed of it. Or the offender is luring them with things like special attention and gifts money, trips, um, all sorts of things of value, access to alcohol, letting them do forbidden things, all of these things are ways that these kind of offenders worm their way into the child's life in a way that makes the child reluctant or completely unwilling to tell anyone when the abuse takes place.
1: Now, is there any warning signs in kids that are typical
2: There are. Of course, it depends on the age of the child, and there's a huge range of behavioral changes. But the, the number one thing is just that, behavioral changes. Pay attention to when your child's behavior suddenly shifts. If they're not the same child they were a few weeks or a few months before, you should be exploring and wondering why. But children who become secretive, children who have things that they cannot explain how they got them, children who seem uh, moody or depressed suddenly are not doing well in school suddenly are uncommunicative these are all potentially signs of children that are being groomed and or abused
0: i can imagine that if any sort of legal action were to be were to be taken against the abuser it would have to be done within the statute of limitations for child abuse can you give us some insight on how long the statute of limitations is for child abuse and how just that waiting period affects the overall trial of somebody who is being uh, prosecuted for this?
2: Yeah, great question. So some state every state in the country has a different statute of limitations for sex offenses. Some of them are for sex offenses regardless of whether the victim's a child or adult. Some of them are for sex sex offenses just about children. Some states have no statute of limitations on crimes against children, and that's because, of course, children, generally speaking, do not tell authorities or are not responsible for telling authorities when they've been abused. They tell an adult, and they can't do anything about whether the adult actually tells authorities. Statutes of limitations are in place, of course, because of our sense of fundamental fairness and due process. We always said as prosecutors that cases do not get better with age. People's memories don't improve with time. They get worse, and evidence is lost, and alibi evidence, if it ever existed, is impossible to obtain. So because of the sense of due process and fundamental fairness in this country, we instituted statutes of limitations. But because of the unique uh, crime and effects, With children, who when they are victims, in in many states, those statutes, we have decided as a public policy that the the life and the mental health and well-being of children outweigh those due process interests of offenders. And so it's a really complicated issue. And it, it like I said, it differs from state to state. Some states have very short statutes limitations. Some of them have tied them to the age of the child. So once a child is 18... Then a statute starts to run. Sometimes it's five years, sometimes it's seven. Uh, Sometimes it's tied to was there ever a report to law enforcement or child protective services? If there was, regardless of the age of the child, the statute starts to run. So it's actually very complicated and different in every state.
0: Yeah, totally understand that it's a slippery slope because you don't want a rash of people being falsely accused. But at the same time, how many how many kids are falsely accusing adults? And I mean, it has it does it it should come from somewhere. A kid just doesn't make that up.
2: No, I mean, generally not. Children generally do not lie about being sexually abused and 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 they're oftentimes not capable of maintaining a lie about child sexual abuse because when we have a true account of abuse, it is almost always accompanied with certain details that include um, memories of emotions, memories of smells and touch and sound. Uh time frames like, oh, it was right after I received this bicycle for my fourth birthday, you know, it was close in time to that. Children are able to orient, generally able to orient to something. Now, can children tell you, like you, you always ask, always see children get cross-examined, how many times do you do this? That is a terribly difficult question for children to answer, especially younger children. As children get older, they may be able to answer that question. But younger and younger, they don't have a sense of how many times it happened, just that it happened a lot or all the time or often. They, they can't really answer those questions. So it's, it's very uncommon for children to lie about child sexual abuse. We see, it, we see that children above the age of about eight are no more susceptible to being what we call coached, that is, have someone convince them they've been abused when it's not true, than adults are. So once a child hits about eight, a false allegation uh, being coached by someone else is exceedingly unusual and rare. And we would often, most often, see it in a sort of a custody situation or a divorce battle. Uh, I hesitate to say that because I've prosecuted many cases myself where the children only felt safe to come forward about being abused when the non-offending parent left the offending parent. Uh, and oftentimes that's in a situation of a divorce. So again, a great question, really complicated issue. Uh, and we don't have exact numbers, but we do know that false allegations from children are very rare.
0: That's interesting. Do you think that uh, if there were to be, and this is, I'm just kind of spitballing workshopping this idea with you, what if a statute of limitations was applied to organizations like uh, an organization that continuously gets accused and, and convicted of uh, sexual assault like the Catholic Church or um, an institution that uh, has a, a large amount of um, youths that are dedicated to it like Penn State? What if it was organizationally based?
2: Well, that's I mean, that's a great um, that's a great thought. And fun fact, I begged my bosses at the United States Attorney's Office in Atlanta to let me prosecute the Catholic Church under a RICO um, theory that is racketeer influence corrupt organizations like the mob. In 2002, I asked them I wanted to prosecute the National Catholic Church for exactly that, for their systemic abuse and cover up and facilitation uh, of other abuse because of the cover-ups back in the, you know, 80s, 90s, 2000s, but I was shut down. I was actually, they laughed at me. They actually laughed at me. Um, Who's laughing now? Nobody. Yeah, really. Um, Unfortunately, because it turns out that they should have been prosecuted under that theory. They still can. I have no idea why i'm not aware of any colleagues or former colleagues across the country who are doing that i'm aware of some civil lawsuits but back to your question sorry that was sort of a tangent but back to your question i think that you you can't really have a statute of limitation that is uh, solely focused on an organization i think that would probably violate the ex post facto not ex post facto what is the name? i can't remember the latin name in the constitution that bars laws that specifically target one person or one organization. Uh, I'm sure I'll think of it later, but... Um,
1: we can't help you with it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I should know this, but I'm sure someone who's listening to this podcast right now is shouting at me, but I just can't I can't quite pull it out. But anyway, it's in the Constitution that you can't do that. So we couldn't do that, but it's an interesting thought uh, with respect to civil law. And you, you, you and your listeners might be interested to know that the Catholic Church is one of the biggest opponents of changing statutes of limitations for prosecuting and for civilly suing over child sexual abuse. They have armies of lawyers who lobby state legislatures every time a proposed change to a statute of limitations comes up. And the public is generally unaware of that. Catholics, I think in particular, are unaware that their donations are going to pay lawyers to fight extending statutes of limitations under which some of their priests or their, the diocese themselves could either get prosecuted or sued.
1: Wow. Well, thank you for raising awareness uh, to that and where, where uh, some people's money uh, go when they donate to the Catholic church, because I definitely mm-hmm. was unaware of that. Uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners were too. Uh, that's wild. And, and uh, so so speaking of um, you know you you prosecuting and things like that so you you were a prosecutor uh, and now you've kind of shifted to like a uh, media a crime media career.
2: Yeah, I do sort of two different things. In in part of my uh, career now, I do that. I work in L.A. for a production company and do a lot of uh, consulting on crime content for entertainment. And then my the second focus uh, since I've left the Department of Justice is teaching and speaking and training and I still do a lot of that I consult with uh, international children's charities uh, international and domestic schools law enforcement agencies um, all over the world on investigating and prosecuting child sexual abuse
1: now what about uh, human trafficking Does, does what you do run against that at all
2: yeah, I prosecuted human trafficking cases when I was a federal prosecutor. I did both state and federal prosecution, and I did prosecute human trafficking cases, chiefly sex trafficking cases. Human trafficking breaks down into several uh, topic areas. There's you know, forced labor, people who are brought here and forced to you know, become domestics in people's houses, their passports are taken, and they're, they're paid either nothing or very little. And then there's, of course, also sex trafficking.
1: And so that's what you worked in a little bit.
2: I do, and certainly that's part of uh, consulting here because you know obviously human trafficking and specifically sex trafficking is a big topic and you might have seen you might have seen uh, the TV show FBI which this week had a human trafficking storyline on it. And so it's it's pretty common across entertainment.
1: And it's it's pretty common across the news too and when these stories happen a lot of times it seems like that kind of high profile people in the community were sometimes behind uh, things like that. And I'm kind of harkening back to one uh, from a year ago, which I think was a uh, there, there was a man who was an owner of some kind of NASCAR um, mm-hmm. uh, track in Connecticut, I believe. But uh, I think that topic in general is very uncomfortable for people to talk about and even kind of look into. Uh, do you find that as well?
2: Well, you know, you're so right about that. It's very true. Sex in general, any crime involving sex, whether it's rape, child sexual abuse or sex trafficking, nobody wants to talk about, nobody wants to look at. And it makes it harder to investigate and prosecute these cases because nobody wants to deal with it. And so uh, much needed resources are not put to adequate investigation and prosecution Of these cases. And when it comes to sex trafficking in particular, it's very difficult because you're talking often about young women, it's almost always young women who are brought into this country under false pretenses from oftentimes third world countries or Eastern European countries where they have lived in extreme poverty. Their families have sent them over and spent an enormous amount of money, oftentimes the family's entire uh, fortune, and to whatever extent they have any money. And then when they get here, after being told they were going to work in a hair salon or uh, cleaning houses, they're forced into prostitution against their will. Their families are often uh, threatened. They themselves are threatened. They're also forced to go on to drugs in order to control them. It's a a horrible, horrible situation. But these women, they don't have uh, documents. Their documents are taken. They are told that if they ever tell anyone what's happening to them, they themselves will be arrested and prosecuted. And that is the kind of thing that happens in their home countries. So they don't understand that our justice system does not prosecute victims, but they don't know that. And so they're afraid to come forward or reach out for help. So It's a very difficult kind of uh, case type to prosecute, to investigate and to prosecute.
0: Do you have enough funding for something like that to to do sting operations? Is there or is it just like too overwhelming and, and too short staffed?
2: No, I mean, there's some certainly some pockets I mean the federal government is much better funded, although I still say underfunded, but much better funded than the individual state and local authorities are. And they do sting operations. They do uh, these cross-country sweeps with federal, state and local officials where they pose as those who are young girls or pimps who are pimping out young girls online chiefly, because that doesn't take nearly as much Uh, resource as an actual physical sting operation would. So there are certainly pockets that do sting operations, but we know that there are far more crimes out there being committed than are ever being uncovered.
1: So what ages are susceptible or most susceptible to uh, sex trafficking?
2: Well, I think it probably depends on your definition of sex trafficking. I mean, when we've done studies, the government has done studies with adult prostitutes and some 75 to 80% of them say that they entered into prostitution as a minor. So they were under the age of 18 when they began prostituting. And so someone you know, that's not something they did on their own. Someone else was there uh, either uh, coercing them to do it, forcing them to do it, or encouraging them to do it. And those pimps are really good at uh, appealing to children, and specifically girls are most at risk to be trafficked in the country domestically when they're somewhere around the ages of 14 to 16. And a lot of criminal organizations like gangs have turned to pimping young girls because it's easier and it's more profitable than selling drugs. Because if you think about it, you sell a rock of crack cocaine and that rock is gone. You have to get more from someone in order to sell it. But if you sell a young girl you can do it repeatedly, and these young girls can earn for these horrific traffickers as much as $1,000 a night. One girl.
1: Now, as as parents, uh, what can people watch out for if they have uh, children around that age?
2: Well, the children that are most commonly uh, susceptible to being trafficked, sex traffic, that is forcibly Uh, put into prostitution are the children who are runaways or uh, inside the juvenile justice system already because they're troubled kids. Girls, especially who have been victimized by sexual abuse at home, are far more vulnerable and susceptible to being trafficked by sophisticated pimps. Um, And these are often children who have, you know, home lives that are far, far from ideal. When it comes to children who are, you know, lured online or victimized, it's all those other things that I talked about specifically with those behavioral changes or um, receiving special attention from adults. But when it comes to trafficking, it's a much tougher issue because it's often children who are starting off from the, this is a troubled child standpoint. And so I think they're at much higher risk of being victimized.
0: Am I just misinformed or maybe I'm, you know, only seeing what I uh, what I want to see. But I feel like I see a lot of people going to jail and and whether it's, you know, minimum security or medium security for things like uh, white collar crimes or, or marijuana or something like that. And I feel like they go to jail a lot faster than the guy who molests uh, his his niece or uh someone who is convicted or someone who's put on trial for sex trafficking. Is that just something that I'm seeing because I I feel like I, I like wanna see it or is that an actual fact?
2: No, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting question, an interesting uh, notation about the criminal justice system. I think you're absolutely right, because it's a lot easier and a lot more black and white to prosecute someone for fraud. You know, you've got a paper trail. Literally, you've got financial records, tax documents, those kind of things for white collar cases that make it easy for a jury to, and a judge to understand what's happened and who's been victimized. When it comes to child sexual abuse, though, and very specifically also when it comes to things like child pornography, which is the abuse of a child captured in photo or video form, you have that instinct to look away. You've got a different kind of offender. Generally speaking, they, they tend to be white uh, white collar. They tend to be white. They also tend to be middle class. And I think you have a justice system that doesn't understand the crime doesn't want to believe that the crime exists even. And so you end up getting punishment that doesn't fit the crime. here's a great example. I'm sure everyone's heard of the original Carlos Danger himself, Anthony Weiner. Anthony Weiner was prosecuted by federal authorities. He was, it's commonly reported in the media that he was, quote, sexting with a teenager, which somehow doesn't sound so bad. What he was actually doing is violating federal law that's called enticing a child. So he was enticing a child to engage in illicit sexual conduct. Specifically, he was asking that child who was 15 years old to sexually perform for him and send him images for that crime of enticing. He should have gotten a mandatory minimum of 10 years in prison. And we're just hearing this week that he's about to get out after spending some time, I think 21 months or some ridiculously short time in prison because the federal prosecutors in New York charged him with obscenity, which is a maximum of five years in prison. So they pulled their biggest punch. Now, why did they do that? I don't know, because they had it literally in black and white on his different devices that he was doing this. They had the actual child. They had the text between them. They had the sexually explicit images. Why didn't they prosecute him for that higher level offense? I don't I mean, I don't know. I can't really I can't I certainly can answer that. I can't put myself in their shoes, except to say it is part of what I see and have seen since the 90s as a pattern of minimizing crimes against children for reasons I simply cannot understand or explain.
1: Well, it doesn't seem like Anthony Weiner can help himself. Doesn't seem like he's going to stop now that, you know, he's about to be released again. Um, yeah, I mean, there have been numerous, numerous, yeah. numerous uh, circumstances with him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, no,
2: he's a threat and he's yeah. a young man. There's no question that this guy is going to get right back on the Internet uh, and start doing it again. He is compulsive about it. Uh, based on his behavior with this 15-year-old girl, he has a sexual interest in children. She's a child at 15. Uh, she does not have the capacity to content, consent to that kind of sexual activity. Uh, I guarantee you that he's going to reoffend. What Whether we'll catch him or not is a whole other question.
0: Jesus. Is he still married?
2: As far as I know, yeah. I think so.
0: I got a fun side story about that. Uh, the events and we, we might not even keep this on the interview. The events company that I used to work for years ago did his wedding. It was uh, Anthony oh. Wiener and uh, Huma Abedin. And yeah. uh, we did his wedding. And then shortly thereafter, the charges against him came out. And I was cleaning up some of the inventory from you know various events. And I found that they forgot to take their guest book back where the guests signed the the guest book and it, mm-hmm. it was super ironic to read all of these people telling anthony weiner and huma abedin how they were like a match made in heaven you guys you mm. know it's so wonderful to see the love between you two and i'm and i'm looking at it literally there's a newspaper right next to me that has the headline of anthony weiner you know uh sexting with with underage people it's it, it's just like mind-blowing the uh rose-colored glasses that some people have in that position of power. You know, they all went to the wedding and they all just saw what they wanted to see. I'm sure most of them knew that he had this, like, creepy edge to him. Really? You think they did? I don't know. He looked. Look at him. He looks like he has a <laughs> creepy edge to him. Huma definitely Well, you knew. know,
2: it, it's funny. Anthony Weiner is the perfect example of what I talked about earlier, and that is that people do not recognize when they have a predator amongst them, they don't recognize a sexual deviant, and that you can't call Anthony Weiner anything but a sexual deviant. He is now a convicted sexual deviant, and I think once a deviant, always a deviant. So we'll see.
1: Yeah, agreed. Now we work on uh, another case uh, a little bit, and uh, involved in that case, we've heard stories of uh, some of some of the men who were around this this woman. Um, they, they would feed drugs to some of this woman's friends. They would uh, try to uh, sort of corral them into prostitution, get get them addicted onto drugs, bring them to a city that they weren't super familiar with, and pimp them out. And we, we heard that this was done to some uh, degree of success. Is this a, something that you have come across in your work a lot? Is this a common thing?
2: Yeah, I mean, when it comes to adult female victims, not so much in this country, right? So many of the victims of human sex trafficking, adult sex trafficked victims, uh, are brought in from other countries because they are uniquely vulnerable when they're brought from another country. They don't speak the language. It's easy to take their documents and instill uh, fear in them, et cetera. But when it comes to adult women in this country, I don't think it's nearly as common, and I'm not saying that violent pimp behavior isn't common. It is. That's often how pimps control the women that they pimp out, is through violence. But the women oftentimes are lured in. I always tell people that pimps are master manipulators. They lure these adult women into their organizations, if you can call it that, by At first, telling them that they're going to be their girlfriend, right? So, oh, well, you don't have anywhere to live, or you need a roof over your head, or you need clothes, or you need food. I'll provide that for you. I'm going to be your boyfriend. Yes, I'm a pimp, but you don't ever have to prostitute. You're special. You're my girl. And so they draw them in that way, and they spend some period of time pretending that they care about them and being their boyfriend. As the woman slowly gets drawn into the world, as the pimp provides more and more for her, whether that's drugs, whether that's shelter, whether that's clothes and food. And then eventually one day the pimp comes to them and says, uh, you know, I you can't free ride anymore. We're hurting for money. All the other girls are working. Uh, You know, you're just going to have to work just this once. And they almost all tell the same story. And they all agree to prostitute just that once. And after that, then the pimp controls them with drugs or violence uh, in order to keep them doing it. But it's, it's, a, it's a not a unique theme, that the way that the pimps draw in these adult women. So I've certainly heard many stories about pimps drawing in adult women in a variety of ways, and getting them hooked on drugs is certainly one of them I've heard of.
0: Getting back to children, uh, from children pornography to abuse— is there anything that is a statistic that can show, and probably not, but have you ever heard of anything that's a, some sort of a statistic that can show the amount of children who are abused or used in child pornography who then go on to become perpetrators themselves because they weren't uh, treated or they repressed it or there just wasn't any, you know, the, the abuse continued and they just became more and more angry?
2: Yeah, so that's one of the myths that I like to bust wherever I speak. Um, studies show us that children who are victims of child sexual abuse are no more likely to become offenders than the general population is likely to become offenders. So it it does not increase in any way their risk to be offenders if they are victimized. And I think that's an important message to get to victims because one of the things that they're told in the media, because there are so many offenders out there who claim to have been abused, you know, the good old abuse excuse that I think children and survivors, one of the reasons they don't feel like they can come forward is because they themselves are afraid that they're going to be labeled a soon to be offender themselves. And so I think it's one of the barriers to reporting that we have to do everything we can to dispel.
0: Now, that's really interesting because we talk about people like Ted Bundy and uh, Jeffrey Dahmer who both have said that they had a relatively normal upbringing and they didn't. There was no abuse. And uh, every time I either either whether it's, uh, you know, for our shows or if I'm just having a conversation with somebody about it. Most people say, no, there's got to be something there because someone just can't be that without there being some sort of cause. So you're right. There is this overwhelming conception that there had to have been some sort of horrible abuse in the past in order for this to happen.
2: Well, I think that's easier for people to understand, right? I mean, I right. Think especially when it comes to violent predators, serial killers and, and, and ch- child rapists, for example, I think it's easier for us as humans. To find a reason, what is the reason? There has to be a reason. They can't just be sexually attracted to children, or worse, they can't just be evil. You know, I'm southern. I'm I'm very well able to talk about good and evil, and I can't tell you how many times I use the word evil and closing arguments to define someone who is sexually abusing children and sexually attracted to children. And I think it's just true that people are born bad. Some people, Uh, some people, uh, doctor, social scientists tell us that. About 3% of the adult male population are pedophiles, that is, people with a recurrent and persistent sexual interest in children under the age of 12, and how many of them offend against children, we don't don't know. We don't know how many children are offended against every year. I can tell you that at child advocacy centers across this country, about 300,000 children are seen for services for being victimized when there's an allegation of child sexual abuse. If you extrapolate that with uh, math, which I can't do, <laughs> um, we we never and, promised
1: anyone math here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, thank God, I, I I never do math. But if you do some math and you extrapolate the numbers, three hundred thousand, and then you assume that at its you know high end, that's. 10% of or low end, that's 10% of kids reporting. That's millions of children who are being abused every year. So the numbers are massive. The numbers of offenders who are going uncaught are, are massive. And I think it's overall a scary subject. But I think the point is that people want to find a rational reason why someone is sexually interested in children. And there is not one. There just isn't.
0: Sure and and science can do research all they want you know I it'd be interesting if a reason was ever found and fully support that but for the time being what you said is completely accurate people want to find a reason and I know you just said that you use the word evil a lot but I kind of feel like the word evil is 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 sort of a, a grasping at straws type word because it's the most extreme word that you know that you can say and someone immediately knows what that means. There's no misconstruing the word evil.
2: Well, it is. And my podcasting partner on Best Case, Worst Case, Jim Clemente, former FBI profiler, he doesn't like me to use words like evil and predator. Um, he has a good point. I, I'd like to disagree with him because it's fun. But <laughs> I, I you know he has a point in that evil and predator do create in people's minds an image that is often wrong Uh, it is not that guy sitting on the park bench you know with the overcoat on it's your neighbor and your husband and your father and you know your soccer coach all those people are the ones who are preying on kids and who do have that evil uh, tendency but I, I think Jim has a small point don't tell him I said this (laughs) <laughs> that it does, it can create an image in people's minds that makes them overlook the true threat.
0: But you could also counter with that and say, hey, if you have someone on trial and they look like Anthony Weiner, who you know is in a suit and tie and looks, you know, looks like he just graduated from from Princeton. And Mm -hmm. you and he's convicted and he's convicted. And and that predator word was used or that evil moniker was given to him. That that could be your counter argument, because then you're saying I'm putting this pretty face or Ted Bundy, for example, putting that pretty face with that word. And eventually it's got to it's it has to uh, it has to come together with people. But he does kind of have a point as well.
2: Yeah. Exactly, although I'm always right, so don't, don't tell him he has a point. <laughs> Having so, a
1: point doesn't mean you're <laughs> wrong. Yeah, it was, it was speaking of, of you always being right, wait, did, did I hear this correctly? You said 3% of adult males are pedophiles?
2: That's right, and pedophilia is, is a diagnosis that is defined by the persistent, recurrent sexual interest in children- under the
1: age of 12. Yes. Francie, my my skin just crawled off my body and out of the crawl space studio. It's disturbing to look at.
2: It is. <laughs> I bet. I can only but, imagine. I'm glad what? I'm not there to see that. Holy shit. Okay,
0: so and you just said my my follow-up question, which I think you just answered, was what's the age range that defines pedophilia for children?
2: Yeah, it's children under the age of 12. Oh. For the oh definition my God. under the It's called the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, 5th edition. It's what psychiatrists, psychologists say is the definition of pedophilia.
0: How many of those men act upon this? All of them?
2: Well, you know, that's a great question, and we just don't know the answer. Law enforcement has been trying to answer that question uh, for decades now so that we can figure out how to combat it. But we don't know. Nobody knows, and that is extrapolated based on studies and research and treatment of sex offenders done by some of the best uh, social scientists in the world, Dr. Michael Cito, Dr. Mike Burke at the Marshals, U.S. Marshal Service, and Dr. Joe Sullivan in Ireland have all been working on this topic for, you know, gosh, 30 years, and that's what they tell us is their best uh, estimate of the percentage of persistent sexual interest in children by. Pedophiles, 3%. And can I just say, it's not always men. We know there are women who are sexually attracted to children, but because we've had so few offenders who are women caught over the last couple of decades, the studies are, well, there just aren't any really. We do not understand women offenders nearly as well as we understand male offenders.
1: Jesus. Um Okay, so us here at the Crawl Space Studios, we're not uh, Ashton Kutcher or Shaquille O'Neal. But uh, but is there anything we can do to kind of combat this aside from what we're doing right now, which is try to raise awareness for this stuff?
2: Yeah, you know, raising awareness is fantastic and I certainly appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. I think also one of the things that people don't realize is how difficult it is for children to go through the court process to make an allegation. There's some uh, figure out there of a study done where of the allegations that are reported, you know, of that 10 to 25 percent, only about 3 percent of those ever end up in a conviction. Only, I I can't remember, 20 percent of them ever end up in an actual investigation. A smaller percentage end up in arrest and only about 3 percent end up in an actual conviction. Children have a very difficult time going through the court system because they're children. They're not adults. And so around the country are heroes doing work that almost no one knows about. And those are the personnel working at child advocacy centers. These CACs, they're the ones who interview and treat children who have made an allegation of child sexual abuse day in and day out for very low pay, children who are taken out of their home when there's an allegation made, they're sent to the advocacy center to wait for some kind of a foster situation or or somewhere that they are able to stay while the allegations are investigated. And so these children need a lot of things. They need uh, clothes. They need food. They need a friendly environment and to be interviewed, child-sized chairs and tables, recording equipment for the professionals who are doing those interviews. All of these things are being done by child advocacy centers who are all you all run as nonprofits and all of whom are desperate for volunteers and for funds. So the best thing I can do is to recommend that people find out from your local district attorney's office who the child advocacy center is in your jurisdiction and donate your time, donate your money, bake cookies Bring by bottles of water or little um, care bags that children might need if they're suddenly taken out of their home. Teddy bears and pillows and blankets. Child Advocacy Centers are the unsung heroes of the court system, and they need help. And I think that's a, a great way that every person can help. There's a national organization called the National Children's Alliance. And the National Children's Alliance, which you can find their website online, the National Children's Alliance uh, certifies all of the children's advocacy centers around the country. There are hundreds of them doing work. In the state I'm uh, from, Georgia, we have the uh, Child Advocacy Centers of Georgia, CACGA.org, that you can go to. And I, I, I certainly encourage people to do that and to donate to CACGA.org or to the National Children's Alliance or to any child advocacy center in your state. But you can go to the National Children's Alliance, call them, ask them where there's an advocacy center in your state that you might be able to donate to.
0: This is probably about as dark as a topic as you can get when you're discussing true crime and Uh, getting your voice out there and and making it a part of your life pretty much 100% of the day that you're awake. How do you find the light in all of this darkness?
2: I feel like um, it's incredibly difficult to investigate and prosecute and sit on a jury, by the way, for crimes against children. Uh, It's something that you never get used to. It's something that um, is always hard. It always weighs on your soul. I have seen Millions of images of children being sexually abused. Uh, I can't forget any of them. Um, you know, you, you have to just try to put them in a pocket of your brain and close the door and hope that uh, you don't have to open it. And I think it chips away a little bit at your soul. I feel like I'm a little weighed down with that darkness. And so you have to find whatever for you. Makes you feel better. I think for the professionals working in it, sometimes it's gallows humor, never making fun of the children, but being able to maybe make fun of the offenders or sort of peripheral things or each other so that there's a lighter atmosphere. Having someone to talk to generally about it uh, and share that trauma sometimes uh, helps. But ultimately, I think understanding and supporting. The people in your community or in your life who are working in the space of Crimes Against Children and just telling them, you know, you got their back and if they ever need to talk, you're there. Uh, You can't imagine how uh, nice that would be for them.